Section 15 of To the Last Man by Zane Gray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 8, Part 1. Was sure thinking that same, said the other man. And say, didn't that last shot sound too sharp for Summers 45? Come to think of it, I reckon it did, replied Greaves. Well, I'll go around over there and see. The dark form of the rustler slipped out of sight over the embankment. Better go slow and careful, warned Greaves, and only go close enough to call Summers. Maybe that damned half-breed Isbel is coming some engine on us. Jean heard the soft swish of footsteps through the wet grass. Then all was still. He lay flat with his cheek on the sand, and he had to look ahead and upward to make out the dark figure of Greaves on the bank. One way or another, he meant to kill Greaves, and he had the willpower to resist the strongest gust of passion that had ever stormed his breast. If he arose and shot the rustler, the act would defeat his plan of slipping on around upon the other outposts, who were firing at the cabins. Jean wanted to call softly to Greaves. You're right about the half-breed, and then, as he wheeled aghast, to kill him as he moved. But it suited Jean to risk leaping upon the man. Jean did not waste time in trying to understand the strange, deadly instinct that gripped him at the moment. But he realized then he had chosen the most perilous plan to get rid of Greaves. Jean drew a long, deep breath and held it. He let go of his rifle. He rose silently as a lifting shadow. He drew the bowie knife. Then, with light, swift bounds, he glided up the bank. Greaves must have heard a rustling, a soft, quick pad of moccasins, for he turned with a start. At that instant, Jean's left arm darted like a striking snake around Greaves's neck and closed tight and hard. With his right hand free, holding the knife, Jean might have ended the deadly business in just one move. But when his bared arm felt the hot, bulging neck, something terrible burst out of the depths of him. To kill this enemy of his father's was not enough. Physical contact had unleashed the savage soul of the Indian. Yet there was more. And as Jean gave the straining body a tremendous jerk backward, he felt the same strange thrill, the dark joy that he had known when his fist had smashed the face of Sim Bruce. Greaves had leered. He had corroborated Bruce's vile insinuation about Ellen Jorth. So it was more than hate that actuated Jean Isbel. Greaves was heavy and powerful. He whirled himself, feet first, over backward, in a lunge like that of a lassoed steer. But Jean's hold held. They rolled down the bank into the sandy ditch, and Jean landed uppermost, with his body at right angles with that of his adversary. Greaves, your hunch was right, hissed Jean. It's the half-breed, and I'm going to cut you, first for Ellen Jorth, and then for Gaston Isbel. Jean gazed down into the gleaming eyes. Then his right arm whipped the big blade. It flashed, it fell. Low down, as far as Jean could reach, it entered Greaves's body. All the heavy, muscular frame of Greaves seemed to contract and burst. His spring was that of an animal in terror and agony. It was so tremendous that it broke Jean's hold. 
Greaves let out a strangled yell that cleared, swelling wildly, with a hideous mortal note. He wrestled free. The big knife came out. Supple and swift, he got to his knees. He had his gun out when Jean reached him again. Like a bear, Jean enveloped him. Greaves shot, but he could not raise the gun nor twist it far enough. Then Jean, letting go with his right arm, swung the buoy. Greaves' strength went out in an awful hoarse cry. His gun boomed again, then dropped from his hand. He swayed. Jean let go. And that enemy of the Isbels sank limply in the ditch. Jean's eyes roved for his rifle and caught the starlit gleam of it. Snatching it up, he leaped over the embankment and ran straight for the cabins. From all around, yells of the Jorth faction attested to their excitement and fury. A fence loomed up, gray in the obscurity. Jean vaulted it, darted across the lane into the shadow of the corral, and soon gained the first cabin. Here he leaned to regain his breath. His heart pounded high and seemed too large for his breast. The hot blood beat and surged all over his body. Sweat poured off him. His teeth were clenched tight as a vice, and it took effort on his part to open his mouth so he could breathe more freely and deeply. But these physical sensations were as nothing compared to the tumult of his mind. Then the instinct, the spell, let go its grip, and he could think. He had avenged Guy. He had depleted the ranks of the Jorths. He had made good the brag of his father, all of which afforded him satisfaction. But these thoughts were not accountable for all that he felt, especially for the bitter sweet sting of the fact that death to the defier of Ellen Jorth could not efface the doubt, the regret, which seemed to grow with the hours. Groping his way into the woodshed, he entered the kitchen, and calling low, he went on into the main cabin. "'Jean, Jean!' came his father's shaking voice. "'Yes, I'm back,' replied Jean. "'Are you all right?' "'Yes. I think I've got a bullet crease on my leg. I didn't know I had it till now. It's bleeding a little, but it's nothing.' Jean heard soft steps, and someone reached shaking hands for him. They belonged to his sister Anne. She embraced him. Jean felt the heave and throb of her breast. "'Why, Anne, I'm not hurt,' he said, and held her close. "'Now you lie down and try to sleep.' In the black darkness of the cabin, Jean led her back to the corner, and his heart was full. Speech was difficult, because the very touch of Anne's hands had made him divine that the success of his venture in no wise changed the plight of the women. "'Well, what happened out there?' demanded Blaisdell. "'I got two of them,' replied Jean. "'The fellow who was shooting from the ridge west, and the other was Greaves.' "'Ha!' exclaimed his father. "'Sure then it was Greaves yelling,' declared Blaisdell. "'By God, I never heard such yells. "'What'd you do, Jean?' I knifed him. You see, I'd planned to slip up on one after another, and I didn't want to make a noise. But I didn't get any farther than Greaves. Well, I reckon that'll end their shooting in the dark, muttered Gaston Isbel. We've got to be on the lookout for something else. Fire, most likely. The old rancher's surmise proved to be partially correct. 
Jorth's faction ceased the shooting. Nothing further was seen or heard from them. But this silence and apparent break in the siege was harder to bear than deliberate hostility. The long, dark hours dragged by. The men took turns watching and resting, but none of them slept. At last the blackness paled, and gray dawn stole out of the east. The sky turned rose over the distant range, and daylight came. The children awoke, hungry and noisy, having slept away their fears. The women took advantage of the quiet morning hour to get a hot breakfast. "'Maybe they've gone away,' suggested Guy Isabel's wife, peering out of the window. She had done that several times since daybreak. Jean saw her somber gaze search the pasture until it rested upon the dark, prone shape of her dead husband, lying face down in the grass. Her look worried Jean. "'No, Esther, they've not gone yet,' replied Jean. "'I've seen some of them out there at the edge of the brush.' Blaisdell was optimistic. He said Jean's night work would have its effect and that the Jorth contingent would not renew the siege very determinedly. It turned out, however, that Blaisdell was wrong. Directly after sunrise, they began to pour volleys from four sides and from closer range. During the night, Jorth's gang had thrown earth banks and constructed log breastworks, from behind which they were now firing. Jean and his comrades could see the flashes of fire and streaks of smoke to such good advantage that they began to return the volleys. In half an hour, the cabin was so full of smoke that Jean could not see the womanfolk in the corner. The fierce attack then abated somewhat, and the firing became more intermittent, and therefore more carefully aimed. A glancing bullet cut a furrow in Blaisdell's hoary head, making a painful, though not serious, wound. It was Esther Isabel who stopped the flow of blood and bound Blaisdell's head, a task which she performed skillfully and without a tremor. The old Texan could not sit still during this operation. Sight of the blood on his hands, which he tried to rub off, appeared to inflame him to a great degree. Isabel, we got to go out there, he kept repeating, and kill them all. No, we're going to stay here, replied Gaston Isabel. Sure I'm looking for Blue and Fredericks and Gordon, to open up out there. They ought to be here. And if they are, you sure can bet they've got the fight sized up. Isbel's hopes did not materialize. The shooting continued without any lull until about midday. Then the Jorth faction stopped. Well, what's up now? queried Isbel. Boys, hold your fire and let's wait. Gradually the smoke wafted out of the windows and doors until the room was once more clear. And at this juncture, Esther Isbel came over to take another gaze out upon the meadows. Jean saw her suddenly start violently, then stiffen, with a trembling hand outstretched. Look, she cried. Esther, get back, ordered the old rancher. Keep away from that window. What the hell, muttered Blaisdell. She sees something, or she's gone dotty. Esther seemed turned to stone. Look, the hogs have broken into the pasture. They'll eat Guy's body. Everyone was frozen with horror at Esther's statement. Jean took a swift survey of the pasture. 
a bunch of big black hogs had indeed appeared on the scene and were rooting around in the grass not far from where lay the bodies of Guy Isbel and Jacobs. The herd of hogs belonged to the rancher and was allowed to run wild. "'Jane, those hogs,' stammered Esther Isbel, to the wife of Jacobs. "'Come, look. Do you know anything about hogs?' The woman ran to the window and looked out. She stiffened, as had Esther. "'Dad, will those things eat human flesh?' queried Jean breathlessly. The old man stared out of the window. Surprise seemed to hold him. A completely unexpected situation had staggered him. "'Jean, can you, can you shoot that far?' he asked huskily. "'To those hogs? No, it's out of range.' "'Then, by God, we've got to stay trapped in here and watch an awful sight,' ejaculated the old man, completely unnerved. "'See the break in the fence? Jorth's done that.' to let in the hogs. Ah, oh, Isbel, it's not so bad as all that, remonstrated Blaisdell, wagging his bloody head. Jorth wouldn't do such a hell-bent trick. It's sure done. Well, maybe the hogs won't find Guy and Jacobs, returned Blaisdell, weakly. Plain it was that he only hoped for such a contingency and certainly doubted it. Look, cried Esther Isbel piercingly, they're working straight up the pasture. Indeed, to John it appeared to be the fatal truth. He looked blankly, feeling a little sick. Anne Isbel came to peer out of the window, and she uttered a cry. Jacob's wife stood mute, as if dazed. Blaisdell swore a mighty oath. Isbel, we can't stand here and watch them hogs eat our people. Well, we'll have to. What else on earth can we do? Esther turned to the men. She was white and cold except her eyes, which resembled gray flames. Somebody can run out there and bury our dead men, she said. Why, child, it'd be sure death. You saw what happened to Guy and Jacobs. We just got to bear it. Sure nobody needn't look out and see. Jean wondered, if it would be possible to keep from watching. The thing had a horrible fascination. The big hogs were rooting and tearing in the grass, some of them lazy, others nimble, and all were gradually working closer and closer to the bodies. The leader, a huge gaunt boar that had fared ill all his life in this barren country, was scarcely fifty feet away from where Guy Isbel lay. And... Get me some of your clothes and a sunbonnet quick, said Jean, forced out of his lethargy. I'll run out there disguised. Maybe I can go through with it. No, ordered his father positively, and with dark face flaming. Guy and Jacobs are dead. We can't help them now. But Dad, pleaded Jean. He had been wrought to a pitch by Esther's blaze of passion, by the agony in the face of the other woman. I tell you no, thundered Gaston Isbel, flinging his arms wide. I will go, cried Esther, her voice ringing. You won't go alone, instantly answered the wife of Jacobs, repeating unconsciously the words her husband had spoken. You stay right here, shouted Gaston Isbel hoarsely. I'm going, replied Esther. You've no hold over me. My husband is dead. No one can stop me. 
I'm going out there to drive those hogs away and bury him. Esther, for heaven's sake, listen, replied Isbel. If you show yourself outside, Jorth and his gang will kill you. They may be mean, but no white man could be so low as that. Then they pleaded with her to give up her purpose, but in vain. She pushed them back and ran out through the kitchen with Jacob's wife following her. Jean turned to the window in time to see both women run out into the lane. Jean looked fearfully and listened for shots, but only a loud haw-haw came from the watchers outside. That coarse laugh relieved the tension in Jean's breast. Possibly the Jorths were not as black as his father painted them. The two women entered an open shed and came forth with a shovel and a spade. "'Sure they've got to hurry,' burst out Gaston Isbel. Shifting his gaze, John understood the import of his father's speech. The leader of the hogs had no doubt scented the body. Suddenly he espied them and broke into a trot. "'Run, Esther, run!' yelled John with all his might. That urged the woman to flight. Jean began to shoot. The hog reached the body of Guy. Jean's shots did not reach nor frighten the beast. All the hogs now had caught a scent and went ambling toward their leader. Esther and her companion passed swiftly out of sight behind a corral. Loud and piercingly, with some awful note, rang out their screams. The hogs appeared frightened. The leader lifted his long snout, looked, and turned away. The others had halted. They too wheeled and ran off. All was silent then in the cabin, and also outside, wherever the Jorth faction lay concealed. All eyes manifestly were fixed upon the brave wives. They spaded up the sod and dug a grave for Guy Isbel. For a shroud, Esther wrapped him in her shawl. Then they buried him. Next they hurried to the side of Jacob's, who lay some yards away. They dug a grave for him. Mrs. Jacobs took off her outer skirt to wrap round him. Then the two women labored hard to lift and lower him. Jacobs was a heavy man. When he had been covered, his widow knelt beside the grave. Esther went back to the other, but she remained standing and did not look as if she prayed. Her aspect was tragic that of a woman who had lost father, mother, sisters, brother, and now her husband in this bloody Arizona land. The deed and demeanor of these wives of the murdered men surely must have shamed Jorth and his followers. They did not fire a shot during the ordeal, nor give any sign of their presence. Inside the cabin, all were silent too. Jean's eyes blurred, so that he continually had to wipe them. Old Isbel made no effort to hide his tears. Blaisdell nodded his shaggy head and swallowed hard. The woman sat staring into space. The children, in round-eyed dismay, gazed from one to the other of their elders. "'Well, they're coming back,' declared Isbel, in immense relief. "'And so help me, Jorth let them bury their dead.' The facts seemed to have been monstrously strange to Gaston Isbel. When the women entered, the old man said brokenly, I'm sure glad, and I reckon I was wrong to oppose you, and wrong to say what I did about Jorth. 
No one had any chance to reply to Isbel, for the Jorth gang, as if to make up for lost time and surcharged feelings of shame, renewed the attack with such a persistence and furious volleying that the defenders did not risk a return shot. They all had to lie flat next to the lowest log in order to keep from being hit. Bullets rained in through the window, and all the clay between the logs low down was shot away. This fusillade lasted for more than an hour. Then gradually the fire diminished on one side and then on the other until it became desultory and finally ceased. Uh-huh. Sure they've shot their bolt, declared Gaston Isbel. Well, I don't know about that, returned Blaisdell. But they shot a hell of a lot of shells. Listen, suddenly called Jean. Somebody's yelling. End of chapter 8, part 1